The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Good evening. Well, Pastor Skip has commissioned me to be your pilot this evening on this connecting flight as we continue through the Bible at 30,000 feet. For those who I have not had the privilege of meeting, my name is Neil and I serve as one of the pastors here at this church and I'm so very grateful for that opportunity to serve the Lord and to serve you as one on our pastoral team. Do you know that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul? The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are right, they're true, and altogether righteous. Now those words are God giving testimony to the absolute perfection of His Word. Now those of you who have a Bible, would you please hold it up, whether it's in book form or even on a device. What you hold up in your hands is absolute perfection. Nothing on earth is as comprehensively perfect as God's revelation of Himself to us in the Scripture. That Bible you hold cannot be improved upon. It's always complete. No charging is ever required. It's always at full strength. You never have to update its operating system. It's always operating at full effect. There's no transfusions ever needed or supplements required for God's Word to be perfect and complete. So tonight, as we fly through the Bible at 30,000 feet, I want to welcome you to Edict Airlines, where our airline motto is this, travel to and beyond the heavens perfectly. Now that's right. God's Word, the Bible, is God's perfect flight plan for our lives. Now, our flight path this evening is going to be dictated by two passages. The first I shared with you in the form of three verses from Psalm 19, and that was verses 7 through 9. So you want to mark your Bible, you want to turn to Psalm 19, where we're going to look at verses 7 through 9. But I also want you to create a marker at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Now, a New Testament corollary to the truths found in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, are given to us by Paul as he wrote to Timothy, beginning in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he says, All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, those two passages are merely two of God's boasts 
of the perfection of His Word that are found in His Word. You see, the Bible can be appreciated as God's autobiography, and in it, He declares it to be perfect and complete. Now, friends, the magnitude of this declaration by God must not be overlooked. The implications of of this bold announcement by God must be fully appreciated. The self-proclaimed perfection of God's Word must never be treated in a cavalier fashion. For the claims and promises of God's Word, about God's Word, are supreme game-changers for every single one of us, both immediately and for all eternity. Now, such declarations, if they were not true, would be considered audacious. In fact, the claims are so amazing that if they're not true, then God would have to be accused of being either a liar or a lunatic. Crazy. But we know neither of those are true. Therefore, we take heed to what God says about the perfection of His Word. You see, God's Word declares that the Bible is perfect in converting your soul and in completing your life. You see, in God's Word is contained your ticket to heaven and your boarding pass to heavenly living. It's perfect and complete, lacking absolutely nothing. So simply stated, God's Word is the perfect flight plan for our lives for seven reasons. First, it has perfect authorship. We also are going to find tonight that it has perfect doctrine. Perfect completeness, perfect correction, perfect instruction, perfect reproof, and it yields perfect results. Now, back in 1986, there was one single flight that took two people circumnavigating the entire globe in one flight without any refueling or any stops. And that flight was referred to, known as the Rutan Model 76 Voyager. Since then, a number of other flights have done the same thing in similar fashion. And while that's an amazing feat, there were only two people in that aircraft. So there's no single flight that can take everyone who's willing to every place of significance on the entire globe. And such are the same limitations for us tonight. You see, tonight's flight path will only touch on some scriptural coordinates or landmarks that serve to establish our confidence in the Scripture. So we're going to gain altitude very quickly. So fasten your seatbelts. Hold your place at Psalm 19 and at 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. Because tonight we're going to consider both passages in an overlapping interlinear fashion. Kind of like a transparent overlay, one on top of the other, with Psalm 19 as our Old Testament foundation. So, with that being said, let's fly. And let's start with a consideration of some of the background of Psalm 19. Psalm 19, as many of you know, was written by King David. It was written around 1015 B.C., toward the end of David's life. And those who've studied David know that this man was a man who experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows when it came to being a human. We find in Scripture that by faith, David victoriously overcame tremendous adversities and he won very significant battles, both personally 
and on behalf of the nation, killing a lion with his bare hands as a young man, and then obviously killing the Philistine with one sling of a rock. Yet, while he did that by faith, it was by faithlessness that he suffered great defeat at the hand of sin, both his personal sin and as a victim of the sins of others. We see that this was a man who lived meagerly while he was growing up, and when he was older, during those stints of time, when he was fleeing from King Saul, running for his life. And yet he also lived in grandeur, in a palace fit for a king, that God enabled himself to commission the building of. He experienced the joys of the birth of his children, and yet he also experienced the extreme heartache of the rebellion of some of those children and of the deaths of some of those children before he himself had died. This was a man that we read who preserved lives, most notably King Saul. When he had a chance to take his life, even though all of us would agree to some extent that King Saul deserved it, he chose not to touch the Lord's anointed, but to preserve his life. And yet the same man was also responsible for the murder of uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. We see that God allowed this man to accomplish great things, such as being the king. But we also find that through his failures, God also prohibited from him from doing certain things such as building the temple for God. He promised that that would come through his son, Solomon. So it's this man that God chooses to pen this testimony, this boast of his, God's word of perfection and of perfect sufficiency for every stage of life to meet the need that each and every one of us would have throughout our entire lives. As we look at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6 start off with giving us what theologians call general revelation about the existence of God. That is, discovering God's existence through His creation. But then we get to what theologians call specific revelation. That is, revelation of God specifically through His Word, and that's found in verses 7 through 9 that we'll look at tonight. Now, as we look closer now at verses 7 through 9, I want you to first notice the arrangement of these three verses. You see, each of these three verses contains two declarations from God about His Word. Each declaration starts with giving us a synonym for the Word of God. Those synonyms are law, testimony, statutes, commandment, fear, and judgments. Each of those synonyms are then followed up by six significant characteristics of God's Word. Those characteristics are that it is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, and it is true. And then each of those six declarations conclude with a special effect of God's Word. And those effects are that it converts the soul, it makes wise the simple, It rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever, and it's altogether righteous. Now it should also be noted, and some of you might have noticed this as we were reading through those verses, that each declaration refers to the Word as the Word of the Lord, and that's where we begin tonight. 
that the word of the Lord is perfect because it has perfect authorship. In that phrase, of the Lord, the word used for the Lord is Yahweh. And that is the covenant name of God. And so God immediately is attributing the content of His word as coming from Him. He's declaring to us that He is the source. Now, if you hold your marker at Psalm 19, you also consider 2 Timothy 3.16. And there we find the corollary to this being of the Lord. And that is the phrase which reads, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That New Testament phrase in the Greek is passe grafe theonustos. Beautiful phraseology. In fact, do any of you here have an NIV translation of the Bible? Now, if you have an NIV, you're going to read what is perhaps the best translation of that phrase. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed. So this process of God breathing His Word through those that penned His Word onto parchment, onto paper, can also be further appreciated by how Peter refers to this process. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Now, I'm going to ask you not to turn there, but just to simply listen. If you're taking notes, you can write down the reference and look at it later. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter describes the process this way. He says, Knowing first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That doesn't mean that the Scripture was given and the person was trying to figure out how to understand it or how to interpret it, but rather that process of God giving the men that penned His Word onto parchment how they understood it as they received it from Him. He says that none of it is to be perceived as of coming from any private interpretation, but he goes on to say, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God, who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now again, that phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit, is pregnant with richness. What it means literally is to be moved by the wind, or in this case, the breath of. They were carried by the breath of God. So this is how God wants us to understand it. God gave His message through select men, Much like how airflow envelops a commercial airliner. And then that airliner is directed by the precise adjustments of the various components of that aircraft's wings and tail. And so you have the flaps of the wings, the rudders, the ailerons, which are the outer flaps toward the edge end of each wing. You have the spoilers, you have the stabilizers, you have the elevators that give that aircraft lift. All of these are functioning in concert under divine control or divine inspiration, directing that vessel on a very exact path to an exact destination. And yet, much like each of those authors, I want you to envision that cabin of that aircraft where you have, whether it's the pilot or anybody else who had a function in that aircraft, While they're in that aircraft, they're still the person that God made them to be. They don't become someone else or something else. They're still who they are. And in addition to that, they're still free to move about the cabin. And yet from start to finish, they get exactly where God wants them to go. And they get there using the very words that God wants them to use in order to get there. So, God intended 
God's intended messages flowed through the minds, the hearts, the souls, the mouths, the languages of those he chose to pen the scripture. That's how he describes this process of him giving us the scripture by the very inspiration of God, the very breath of God. Now at this point it should be noted that there are a few types of inspiration that this should not be equated with. The first of which is, this is not to be understood as what we would consider natural inspiration. Natural inspiration is that type of motivation and excitement and lift that you get when you've just been in the presence of a virtuoso performance. And you're so enthralled by the artistry or the precision or the exactitude of that performance that you emerge from that performance feeling inspired to go then apply that same level of dedication and of artistry to your craft. That's not the type of inspiration that's being referred to here, nor should it be appreciated as what's called conceptual inspiration. It's not to be understood that God looked upon each of the people that wrote the Scripture and says, hey, here's an idea. I want to give you this concept, and I want you to run with it. I want you to perhaps figure out what you think it should sound like and what words should be used. It's not conceptual inspiration, nor is it mechanical inspiration. Mechanical inspiration would be like a mechanistic dictation to where the person sits down and is just told almost in a robotic, mechanistic fashion what God wants written, and then it's written down. It's not that. It's what theologians call verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Verbal, referring to the words. Plenary, meaning all of the words are inspired. It means the very specific and precise words themselves are breathed through the authors by God. You can appreciate it this way. And again, don't turn there, but if you're taking notes, you can simply write the references down and look them up later. But in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 16, and then also we find twice in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, In chapter 5, verse 14, God tells his people this very literal quote. He says, I have put my words in your mouth. I have put my words in your mouth. And so as each of those people voiced the word of God, it sounded like the person. It had some of their flavor, perhaps some of their intonation, some of their tact or lack thereof. It had the expression that's coming from that person, but nevertheless... It was God's word through them in their mouths. So this inspiration doesn't just refer to the words in a general sense, but in a very precise and specific sense. This inspiration extends to every word and even every form of punctuation. This can be appreciated by Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, where he says this, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. That word jot refers to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So even though it's the smallest, it was still very much on God's mind. And that word tittle refers to an inflection point that's applied above a letter in a word that provides nuanced understanding of what that word is intended to mean what it's intending to communicate. So from the smallest letter of the alphabet to the smallest inflection of grammar, God specifically inspired this message to come through 
the authors to us. And the fact is, folks, if we can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then everything beyond verse 1 throughout the entire Bible is easy to believe. If God can create the heavens and the earth, set them in motion and maintain them, then surely He is capable of presenting to us His perfect and complete autobiography in the form of the Scripture. I want us to further appreciate it through the words of Paul who wrote it to a people who got it. This was the church in Thessalonica. And in his first letter to the Thessalonians, he writes these words in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He says to the Thessalonians, regarding their response to the word of God, he says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, furthermore, the Bible doesn't simply profess to be words about God, but the actual very words of God. And some of you may not know this, but it's the only book that's considered by people in general, Holy Scripture, Sacred Writings. It's the only book considered a sacred writing that professes to be the very words of God. Again, not simply words about God. Now, as such, we as Christians are often accused of being idolaters in the form of being worshipers of a book. But indeed, we are not worshipers of a book, even though this revelation is perfect. Rather, we are to be understood as worshipers of the God who perfectly reveals Himself in His book. You see, it can be uh, understood perhaps more so in this analogy. Let's say that there was an extenuating circumstance that caused you to be separated geographically from a loved one, whether it was a spouse or a parent or a child. And you were separated geographically for an extended period of time, but you wanted to convey a message to them. The only way that you could do that was in letter form. And yet you were hindered in writing that letter, so the best option you had was to simply share your thoughts and intentions with someone who they could then put your words onto paper with pen. Finally, that letter arrives to you. And you read it. And in that letter, they're telling you everything that there is to know about how they love you and what's expected of you. And, and what you should be able to expect from them. And as you read that letter, you might even hold it close to your chest because you're so warmed by the message of that letter. It's not that you love the paper it's written on. It's not that you love the ink that it's written with, but rather you love the message that's coming from the person that the letter conveys to you. You see, the Bible is always to be appreciated as God's love letter to us, His children. It conveys God's heart for us and His expectations of us and His promises to us. Now, as we consider God's Word, it should be also noted that it refers to everything from the front all the way to the back, from Genesis to Revelation. When we refer to God's Word or the Word of the Lord, 
is referred to in Scripture, it refers to all of the Scripture, both Old and New Testament. If you could with me, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want you to look at verse 15. And I simply want you to look at two words found in verse 15. It's the words, Holy Scriptures. Now, those words, Holy Scriptures, in most of your translations, will also be translated in some words, Sacred Writings. That was a very common phrase of the first century, specifically referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. But in the very next verse, we read all Scripture. Now, that word for Scripture is a different word. It's the Greek word, graphe. And that was a word in the first century that became commonly associated with referring to the New Testament writings, the New Testament Scriptures. And so, here... Paul, as he writes to Timothy, is giving us some understanding as we look at the original wording that God's referring to both the Old and the New Testament Scriptures. Furthermore, we can go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and because 2 Timothy is so close, why don't you turn there with me? 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, where we have yet another very uh, clever and profound inference, reference by the Holy Spirit through Paul writing to Timothy about what is considered Scripture. So in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, we read, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, and then he quotes two passages of the Bible. The first, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's a quote directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And he goes on to say, again, under this umbrella of a reference to the Scriptures, quote, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, in most of your Bibles, that second quotation will be in red. And because it's in red, that tells us it's the words of Jesus. So that's a direct quotation from the book of Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So in referring to the Scriptures, Paul refers to both an Old Testament reference and a New Testament reference. So when we stand back and we consider the amazing nature of this book, we must appreciate the Bible as God's perfect autobiographical anthology in, get this, 66 books penned through 40 different authors from various backgrounds, from priests to kings to fishermen, and even more. It's written in three languages, penned on three different continents over a span of around 1,500 years. And yet, it has one main character, the Messiah, and one unified theme, the beautiful dramatic redemption of man by the Lord Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? Well, it is that amazing because it has perfect authorship. Now, to encourage you to look into this deeper, I want to give you two suggestions of resources to study further. One is titled, From God to Us, by Dr. Norman Geisler. From God to Us, by Dr. Norman Geisler. It's a thick book that will detail this process in amazing fashion. The second book is The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. The Canon of Scripture. And the word canon simply means 
measuring tool or measuring rod. And that book, again, another beautifully thick book, what it does is it explains to us how we came up with these 66 books and not less or not more, but why these 66 can be trusted as God's perfect revelation. So the Bible is God's perfect flight plan for our lives because it has perfect authorship. Now we consider that it contains perfect doctrine. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That word law is the word Torah. Many of us are familiar with it. We can say that this word refers to the essentials of what must be known about God. You can look at it as God intending to give us his encyclopedia of himself or his reference book about himself. Now the corollary in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 would be the word doctrine. That's the Greek word didaskalos, which means teaching of a didactic nature. God's going to just lay it all down line upon line. And it says that this law is perfect. That word perfect was a common word, meaning complete, precise, and comprehensive. You see, God intends for us to understand His word as the complete explanation of His instruction for man's life. One Old Testament scholar described it this way. It's to be understood as being so complete that it's all-sided so as to cover completely all aspects of a thing. Leaves nothing unearthed, nothing hidden that must be known. Furthermore, it's not to be added to or subtracted from. Now Moses tells us this, that is rather the Holy Spirit through Moses tells us this, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2, where it's declared, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Not only is it complete, but it's also precise. The Bible is to be understood as inerrant. In other words, without error. And that's what theologians will refer to when they make the statement, the inerrancy of Scripture. The Scripture is also to be appreciated as infallible, that is, incapable of error. And as such, it is precise. But it's also to be appreciated as comprehensive. It has comprehensive teaching of a didactic nature with reference to three things. First, theology. What we know and believe about God. It's also comprehensive regarding anthropology what we know and believe about mankind. And thirdly, it's comprehensive regarding psychology, how we as God's creation are to think as well as behave. So we have this law which is perfect that results in the special effect of converting the soul. Would you just stop for a moment and appreciate that God contains in His Word the gospel of Jesus Christ by which men and women must be saved. And as such, it accomplishes something that no one else or nothing else can absolutely accomplish, the salvation of mankind. You see, Paul tells Timothy, again in 2 Timothy chapter 3.15, from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures. And then he gives us the effect, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So it converts our soul. This word converting 
refers to the act of transforming a substance and the very nature of a thing that results in that thing having a rerouted destiny and trajectory. So as saved people, we are now destined for heaven. And our lives are set in alignment in a trajectory toward heaven. And as such, our lives become different. They become changed. And what does it change? Our soul. Converting the soul. It's the Hebrew word nefesh. Refers to the inner person, the real you. Not your outer shell or what you look like. Not what you feel like physically, but the real you. In fact, one of the ways I try to appreciate this is by considering physically identical twins. And while they might have a lot of similarities, there's still going to be aspects of their person that are different. And we say, well, what's different about them? They look exactly alike. Well, it's their soul that's different. It's those things about them on the inside that God touches and no one else or nothing else can in a transforming fashion. You see, Peter described it this way, this effect of the word upon converting our soul. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we're told that we, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And it's very important and significant that we appreciate that this comes first because it is absolutely foundational. You see, for many of us who didn't become Christians until later in life, there was a dramatic change from before we knew Christ, before we had salvation in Christ, to then after coming to know Christ and then discovering the truth about God's Word. And the reason for that is, upon the conversion of our soul, Jesus says you have a promise coming to you. And that promise is found in John 14, verse 16. Just listen to these words of promise from Christ. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, said to you. God's Word. So when we become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have what's often referred to as the resident truth teacher dwelling within us. So we no longer have to be in the dark, but God himself is our teacher. So this perfect word of the Lord saves us, but it gets better. It also makes us wise. No matter who we are or where we come from, it makes us wise. And that comes to us in the form of its perfect completeness. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. That word testimony refers to all the things that we need to know about God. The corollary in 2 Timothy 3.16 would be the word complete. In Timothy, that word complete is the Greek word artios, which means capable or enough, sufficient. You see, within the pages of Scripture, we do not find everything that could be known about God or even about life on earth. Peter put it this way. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. 
It doesn't contain everything we could possibly know, but it absolutely contains everything that we need to know that pertains to life and godliness, both here on earth and for all eternity. Now, the scripture does cover everything, either specifically or principally. Let me give you this example. In the Bible, it's not going to tell you the name of the exact person that you should marry. But it's going to tell you everything about what characteristics that person should have and what they absolutely should not have. And so that's where, in principle, it's going to tell you enough that pertains to your life and your godliness. So basically, God says this. Now that I've got you, now that you're saved, now that you're my child, I give you my book, which is sure, and with me and what I've given you in the scripture, you got this. You're good. There's nothing you're going to come across that is not going to be able to be addressed by me according to my word. And that comes to us because this testimony is sure. I love this word sure. It means centered. Having a nice strong center of gravity. Grounded. Reliable. Steadfast. Immovable. I love how a dear friend of mine, Pastor Kerry Rose, would say it. He says, when you have God's word and it's sure, that means you're a person who no longer has to be standing on marbles. You're steady. You're grounded. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writes again to Timothy. I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. You can be sure of how you should conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground, you might say the foundation of the truth. So this sure testimony results in making wise even the simple. This idea of someone who is simple carries with it the notion of an unsecured or an unguarded life. A life that has no firewalls Erected in order to protect it from anything on the outside. It refers to one who simply walks through life naively vulnerable. Even that person, once God gets a hold of them, can make them a wise woman or a wise man. So to be wise is simply this. It's to be skilled in the art of daily living or to master the art of godly living. It's about making the right choices about the right things, about the right time, to the right degree. David understood this, and he wrote this in Psalm 119, verses 98 to 100. Just listen if you would. He says, You, God, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. So this perfect word of the Lord saves us. It makes us wise and it gets even better. This perfect word of the Lord lays out a map or a flight path for our lives and that comes to us in the form of its perfect correction. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word statutes has to do with guidelines. You might appreciate this as the details on a map. Uh, Some of us 
who've flown recently, they have those uh, screens that are behind every seat. And you can select the option of looking at your flight path and where you are on that flight path. And so this idea of statutes would refer to that line on the flight path that takes you to your exact destination, the exact airport. So when it comes to these statutes, the idea that it's corollary in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 would be the word correction. Because what it refers to is the restoration of something to its original and proper position or condition. So the idea is to reroute our lives according to the right coordinates, to get us back on the path, back on course, back on the proper flight plan. So most of us have devices now that we can simply enter an address and it can navigate us exactly to where we're going. And it still blows my mind how precise these are in very real time. So as you're following the directions, there's times where I've undershot a turn and I turn prematurely. Or I've overshot a turn and I end up turning later than I should have. And immediately that device begins to reroute. And sometimes you can even look at your device and notice that it's kind of tweaking out, trying to figure out where you're going in real time so it can tell you where to go next in order to correct your your path so that you get back on course, back on track. This is what results in the hymn writer and those of us who sing along with their words when we rejoice over the fact that I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You see, this is where God's word, in the form of these statutes, function as rumble strips on the side of a highway. And most of us have had the experience when you're on a long journey and just get a little bit relaxed or perhaps a bit distracted, and you veer just enough off the edge of the outer lane and you hit that rumble strip, right? And if they're nice and new and fresh, man, it creates quite a vibration and quite an immediate noise. And what's the purpose of that? It's to get you back. Back on track. Back to center. David said in Psalm 119, verse 10, With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. So these statutes function as our rumble strips to keep us on the path because they are right. You see, God's Word has right directions. It provides for us the right paths, the best course, the best flight plan for our lives. And as a result, we're not left wondering or wandering puts us exactly where we need to be at every point of our destination traveling this earth. What does this result in? The rejoicing of a heart. Some of us know very well the fear, perhaps even the trepidation of being lost and not knowing exactly how to get back to safety. But once you discover the path, the trail, how to get back home, and once you are back home, there's such a feeling of relief that results in the rejoicing of your heart. You see, getting back on track makes us happy, makes, makes us excited about life. It enables us to be enthusiastic about the future, hopeful, without worry, free from care. It also has the effect of us no longer being crusty 
or perhaps even negative, no longer being grumpy, but rather it rejoices the heart. It brings joy within us. And friend, I can tell you, there is absolutely nothing as satisfying and as joy-producing as living your life according to the Scripture and experiencing the joy that comes therein. Nothing compares to it. No amount of money could replace it. No human experience could overwhelm it. God's Word rejoices the heart when it's followed, when we trust Him to keep us on the path. So this perfect Word of the Lord saves us. It makes us wise. It lays out a map for us to follow throughout life. But it gets better. While we're on that path, while we're following that map, we're told exactly what to do in the form of perfect instruction. And that comes to us as we read out of Psalm 19, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This word commandment has to do with marching orders. The what and how of living life as a Christian. And by virtue of the word command or commandment, it implies a commander and it connotes authority. One of my daughters is right now in the process of getting her driver's license. And so we've put her through driving school and she's had drive time with her driving instructors. But then there's also a collection of hours that need to be accomplished, completed with a qualified adult in the car as she's driving around town. So watch out. (laughs) And so I've taken her out a few times this past week. And initially I start off and then I find myself reminding her throughout the entire hour that, my sweetheart, you need to trust me. Trust me. I know how to drive. I'm qualified. I have my driver's license. I know enough of the rules and the laws to be able to guide you. And I've done this long enough. I can show you exactly how to do what it is you're needing to do in order to learn how to drive. And so I find myself appealing to her to trust me. And it connotes authority. I'm trying to utilize my authority in her life in a way that benefits her. As such, when we're out there teaching her how to drive, I'm not giving her suggestions or options. I'm doing my best to tell her exactly how it needs to be. So when it comes to making turns as she's moving, I found that she was timid in making those turns, and it was resulting in the radius of her turns being too large so that we couldn't navigate the car exactly where it needed to be in order to negotiate the turn. So I found myself encouraging her. I said, grab that steering wheel and steer it like you mean it. Turn it like you mean it. And so as she would do that and as she would move, I would say, don't stop and turn, but keep moving and turn. And eventually she got the hang of it. So again, these commandments connote authority from a commander in order to provide us perfect instruction. Now, the corollary in 2 Timothy 3.16 would be the phrase instruction in righteousness. The term instruction refers to very specifically the training up of a child. Now, we as God's children in this process of receiving God's perfect instruction must discipline ourselves to trust God as His children and He as our Father, our leader, our commander. He says, now that you're mine, I want to engage you in some spiritual training, so I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. 
Now, these commandments are pure. In other words, these instructions are very clear to follow. How many of us have experienced the frustration of trying to follow unclear instructions? You see, God's word are not murky or muddy ambiguity. They're clearly understood. In fact, you who steal, repent. Stop. Steal no more. Rather, work with your hands to acquire what's needed. And with the work of your hands, give to those who are poor so they don't have to steal. If you're lying, stop lying, but tell the truth. So it's very clearly understood. Repent. Follow. This is how you do it. And furthermore... As we do this, we find that our eyes are being enlightened. Not only are God's instructions clear, but his motives are pure as well. You see, none of us like to be influenced by somebody that we're suspecting of having impure motives, selfish motives, motives that disadvantage us and advantage them. You see, God loves us. And so these commandments... These instructions come from a pure, loving heart of God. Now, as such, it enlightens the eyes so that the more you follow God's word, you look at life and so many decisions become absolute no-brainers, right? It's just clear. You do that and you don't do these other things. Psalm 119 and verse 105 David put it this way, Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As such, causes us to respond in a way that we say, I see exactly why God wants me to live this way. You try God enough, you test God's word enough, you're going to discover his love for you and that his instructions, his commandments are perfect. So this perfect word of the Lord saves us, it makes us wise, it lays out a flight path for our lives, tells us what to do while we're on that path, but then it goes even further and addresses now our attitude. And that comes to us in the form of perfect reproof. Now that word reproof, it's a tougher word. It has to do with being busted. Busted from sin. It has to do with being given notice of wrongdoing or that we've committed a violation. And here we read an interesting adjective for the word of the Lord. And it comes to us in the form of the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You ever refer to the Bible as the fear of the Lord? You got your fear of the Lord with you tonight? You got the word of God? You've got the Bible? This fear in scripture, when it refers to the fear of the Lord, is given a very great definition by Pastor Skip. And this is how he describes it. A reverential awe that produces a humble submission toward a loving God. A reverential awe that produces a humble submission toward a loving God. Now the corollary in 2 Timothy 3.16 would be the word reproof. Now this word reproof has to do with a rebuke or a censure to convict us of bad thinking or bad behavior. This would be as we're Driving through life and all of a sudden the sirens turn on and immediately we stiffen up, we straighten up, we're looking in the mirrors to see if that police car that has its sirens blazing is coming after us. This might be when we're playing on the playing field of life and all of a sudden the whistle blows or perhaps the flag is thrown and we immediately look to the official to see if 
It's us that they're flagging, us that they're calling for a violation. This would be as we're going through life where God gives us the uh, dog whisperer, Caesar Milan, and pinch. Some of you know that, right? You ever watch the dog whisperer? You got this dog who's just acting rambunctiously, out of control. And all of a sudden, Caesar Milan comes over and goes, pinches it and gets its attention. And all of a sudden, it's now in submission to him as functioning in the role of alpha male. This fear of the Lord is referred to as being clean. It's the Hebrew word tahor, which refers to pure power. The root is the absence of impurity. In other words, it's not dirty. You see, when somebody steps into a room and they want to establish preeminence or dominance, oftentimes they'll do it in a way that's dirty. It's not nice, usually by intimidation or humiliation. When God establishes order within our hearts and in our conduct, that he's the Lord and we are not, it's always with cleanness. It's perfect. In Psalm 12, verse 6, we read that the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. It is clean. Better yet, when you walk in it, you yourself are clean. What do I mean by that? David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 9 and verse 11, he says, How can a young man cleanse his way? And he gives us the answer. By taking heed according to your word. Your word, Lord, I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then further in Psalm 119 as well, verse 67, David writes, one of my favorite verses, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. In other words, there was an affliction that happened. And I can only picture David walking through life saying, Before I was afflicted, I kind of went on my merry way, but Lord, you loved me enough to reprove me. Or as I like to describe sometimes, he gave you a spiritual spanking. And woo! Now, now, now I stay on path. It ain't worth the pain. I keep your word. Not only that, it says that it endures forever. You know what's beautiful about the fear of the Lord, the Word of God in perfect form? Is that it's never diminishing. It'll always hold up. Another way to appreciate it would be that there's no faded glory when it comes to the Lord. It'll eternally hold up as relevant, powerful, and effective. Now, I might save some of you some money right now, so listen carefully. Just this past week, I learned of a musician that I've appreciated for decades coming into town, having a concert. So I looked online to see how much tickets cost. And as I saw the price of the tickets, I thought, really? That's a lot of money. And so as I prayed about it, thought about it, considered it further, I then thought to myself, wait a minute, maybe it's better to just remember them for what they were. Because in addition to this person being a lot older now, I also remembered that they're a lifelong smoker, so I thought that kind of does some damage on the voice after a while. So I went on Apple Music and I listened to their most recent recorded live concert. And I played a song that I like that's decades old from them. And as I listened to them perform it live, woo! I was low energy, folks. <laughs> that voice was gritty. And I'm thinking, oh Lord, how miserable I would be if I was sitting in that expensive seat listening to this song I love being just annihilated with very low energy, low enthusiasm with the voice that has seen better days. 
And so my conclusion was, I'm going to simply just appreciate and remember them for who they were. Because unfortunately, like all of us, self-included, we all have faded glory. But the fear of the Lord, the perfect Word of God, has no faded glory. And so as we begin to decrease our altitude and bring this to a landing, we consider the perfect Word of the Lord saves us, makes us wise, lays out a flight path for our lives. It tells us exactly what to do while we're traveling that path. It addresses the attitude both internally and externally in the form of our actions. And it brings us to goodness when it comes to living. And that comes to us in the form of the perfect word of the Lord yielding perfect results. And we find the word here, judgments. The judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. This word judgments has to do with the necessary criteria for expected results. We often use the phrase referring to someone as perhaps a good judge of character or a good judge of performance or a good judge of taste. Most of you ladies have that friend that you're going to ask to go with you when you go shopping because they always seem to know what to pull off the rack. They just have an eye for it. They're a good judge of taste. So this refers to simply God giving us the right targets, the right markers to hit in order to live the Christian life in a way that once we live it, boom, we nail it. We're doing exactly what needs to be done. The corollary in 2 Timothy 3.16 would be the phrase, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, this perfect word of the Lord puts every tool and every target in our hands in order to live the Christian life. If you have a New American Standard version of the Bible, you're going to read that phrase as being thoroughly furnished for every good work. And one of the things that's always come to my mind is the feeling that I hate when I'm working on a project and I don't have the right tool for it. And so I will often see a Matco tool truck or a Mac tool truck. There's these large industrial trucks And you know, man, if that thing rolled up into your driveway, man, and some of you women, and they open that back door and reveal to you every tool that you could possibly need for every job, and they said, it's all yours, oh, that would make so many projects that much easier, right? When it comes to our lives, God's done exactly that in the form of His Word. These judgments are true. God puts in our hands the right tool. He gives us the right target. Never off base. Always, always on target. And they're all together righteous. They yield goodness. And I want us to close by considering it this way. If God's word is sufficient to save you, it's sufficient to make you altogether righteous. Whatever it is that you're up against, whatever challenge you're trying to overcome, whether it's within a relationship or your own behavior, know that that obstacle is a smaller obstacle than the obstacle that God has already overcome in the forgiveness of your sin. That's the greatest problem you're ever going to have. It's the most complex problem you're ever going to have. And it's the one problem that without a doubt, no one and nothing else could ever address. So if God's able to solve the greatest problem that you're ever going to face, we all can take heart that every other problem you're facing this evening is lesser than that problem of sin. And if God can accomplish that, 
If God can enable you to overcome that, He can, by His Word, according to His Spirit, enable you to overcome what you're up against. Now, here's another beautiful truth contained in God's Word. I will not, nor will you be, perfect on this side of heaven, even though we have relationship with Jesus Christ and we have His perfect Word, we're still human, aren't we? So please don't misunderstand that the expectation for any of us is perfection on this side of heaven. But I like to look at it this way. If I'm an athlete, say a quarterback, and I'm throwing passes all throughout the game, my intention is to complete every one of those passes. But because I'm human, probably not going to do that. Because the receiver's human, probably not going to do that. Because there's other environmental factors, whether it be wind or cold, I might not be able to do that. Plus, you have a defense, right? You have opposition. And there's times you're just not going to hit your target. So one of the most beautiful truths of Scripture is that God does not expect perfection from us, but rather He forgives us when we are not perfect. You know, one of the greatest gifts you could ever give me is to allow me to be human. And as I offend you or hurt you, you forgive me. And I'd love to return that gift right back to you. And so again, these are simply truths found in the complete and perfect Word of God. Let's pray. Father, our hope is to emerge from this time in a way that increases our confidence that what you've placed in our hands is complete and perfect and sufficient, lacking nothing when it comes to what we're supposed to be able to accomplish as your children, as sons and daughters. We ask, God, that you would give us the presence of mind to be in awe of how amazing your word is, that you've given us the perfect flight plan for our lives in a way that we can have confidence, in a way that we can have joy, in a way that we can, with your enablement, pursue the right targets in the right course of life. For this task, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might honor you, that we might demonstrate our love for you through our trust in you. Lord, we ask humbly that through our lives being lived upon and by your word, you would be greatly pleased and glorified. Lord, we pray that we as a church would be edified and that, Lord, as such, we'd be able to be your channels to expand your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 feet.